Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, The Trouble Is. Here's Pastor Nick. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. We're so glad that you have joined us today for worship and and studying God's Word. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. So Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Let's go ahead and begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that he... Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And this morning, as we consider this topic, Lord, we consider all of your creation. And we pray that as we, as we consider you, as we consider science, as we consider the natural world and the universe and, and all of these things, Lord, may these considerations draw us to a greater worship and praise of you. Lord, may they draw us to see you for how great and glorious you are. And Lord, we just pray that that would be the end of today, would be that we understand the gospel more, that we understand who you are more, and we are drawn into your awe and worshiping you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So right now we are in the middle of a series which is called The Trouble Is. The Trouble Is. And so in this series, we're taking six weeks to address some of the toughest questions, some of the biggest hurdles that people say that they struggle with when it comes to embracing Christianity or putting their faith in Jesus. We, in preparation for this series, took a poll and we asked people, you know, what are the biggest things that you struggle with? Maybe you're not a Christian and he we want to know why. What, it, what is the reason that you would say, this is the reason why I can't believe in God? And if you are a Christian, we also want to know, because what we found is that there are a lot of people who are Christians, and yet you have sincere questions. You say, look, I'm a Christian. I believe. I want to believe. But to, if I'm really honest with you, I, I do have some things that I'm not sure about that I, I really would like to know the answer to, because I want to know that what I believe is actually true, not just what I feel. And, and then we also have know that there's so many people who are just, they don't know exactly. They're not sure what to do with all, with all these different opinions and ideas and evidences and things like that. And I'll tell you, these are the kind of conversations that we get really excited about here at Whitefields. We really love talking to people about the real issues that that are really the things that they're really struggling with when it comes to faith in Jesus and embracing Christianity. Because our hope, my hope through doing this series, is that hopefully we can remove some of those barriers, some of those things that people think are barriers, show them that they're not really barriers. We can remove them so that people can wholeheartedly embrace Jesus and put their faith in him. So this is week three out of six. We've done past two weeks. First, we look at the Bible. Can you really trust it? Has it been changed? Has it been altered? And why would anyone want to live their life according to some archaic book anyway? Then we talked about hypocrisy last week. Interestingly enough, that was the number one thing, not just in our poll, but in all the polls that have been taken as to why people say that they cannot believe in God. They said it's not because there's lack of evidence. They said it's because of the behavior of people who call themselves Christians. So we talked about that last week about the issue of hypocrisy. If you missed either of those, 
or other sermons from the past, we do encourage you, go back and listen to them. You can download and listen to all of our past sermons and content online for free, whitefieldschurch.com. We're also on a podcast if you are a podcaster. And we also encourage you, share those with other people because even if maybe it's not the topic or issue that really touches you, there certainly are other people for whom that is the case. So we encourage you to share those with other people as well. Next week, we're going to be talking about a really interesting one, one that I'm excited about, and that is the topic of the Christ myth. So the Christ myth, this is really the theory, and it's a very popular theory. I was just watching a PBS documentary about the Dead Sea Scrolls this week, and they were talking about this thing called the Christ myth. And the Christ myth is basically the idea that Christianity borrowed all of its teachings and doctrines from other ancient religions and myths and things like Horus or Isis and Ishtar and things like that. So we're going to talk about that. Did Christianity just borrow from other, did they just take things from other religions and slap Jesus' name on them and, and kind of mythologize Christianity? And we're going to talk about that next week. So I'm looking forward to that. Then in the final two weeks, we'll talk about suffering and evil. If there's a good God who can do everything and he really loves you, then why doesn't he stop bad things from happening? Why is there suffering and evil in the world? And finally, the last one we'll talk about is the issue of exclusivity and hell. How can Christianity claim to be the only way? And is that a legitimate claim at all? And is there really such a thing as hell? Or was that just some kind of medieval invention that Christians came up with to manipulate people? We're going to talk about those issues in those weeks. This week, we're looking at a topic which ranked pretty high in our poll as to the reason why people have struggles with embracing Christianity. And for some people, that main issue for them is science. That's what we're going to be talking about today. You know, some people would say, hey, I can't believe in God because I believe in science. If you ever watched Nacho Libre, do you remember that Nacho? Libre had this friend who he met in town, Esquilito. And Esquilito said, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. And so some people say, hey, I can't believe in God because I believe in science. And the assumption is that science somehow disproves the existence of God and the validity of the Bible. But is that true? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Another thing we want to talk about, touch on related to this today is this. One person responded to our poll And they said something that I know a lot of people think. And what they said is, look, the reason I don't believe in God is because I just don't see any evidence. Like if there was some evidence, then maybe I would believe in God. So the question is, is there actually any evidence that God exists? And if so, what is it? We're going to talk about that as well. You know, sometimes people say things, you hear people say things like, faith isn't about facts. Faith is just about feelings. And, you know, if it makes you feel good and it inspires you to be a better person, well, that's all that matters. Let me tell you this. That is not what Christianity believes. Never has and never will. If somebody says that, that's, that's not Christian teaching. Christians don't believe that. See, Christianity, this is one of the things that makes it unique amongst world religions and faith, is that Christianity believes that it absolutely does matter whether what you believe is true or not. Christianity says that what is real is more important than what you feel. And, and this is something that makes Christianity, again, unique, especially compared to other world religions and faiths, is that Christianity claims to be based on actual facts, and it claims to be based on historical events that actually took place. Right? In other words, not just some esoteric, you know, abstract ideas that we believe in. These are, we're saying these, this is the truth of the universe. These are real events that change the, the history of everything. And so if that's true, here's what it means. It means that if Christianity is based on facts, not on feelings, that Christianity should stand up to intellectual scrutiny. So does it? That's kind of what we're talking about in this series. In fact, the Bible itself makes that claim. Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, if Jesus Christ did not actually rise from the dead, if that's just a, a, something that Christians made up, 
If Jesus Christ did not actually rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We might as well be doing something else right now. Because if Christianity isn't true, then we shouldn't waste our time with it. So it absolutely matters whether Christianity is true or not. And this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at uh, two sections. So the first section is going to be this. We want to look at debunking three popular misconceptions about Christianity and science. So we're going to debunk three popular misconceptions about Christianity and science. And then in the second part, we're going to talk about three proofs or evidences that God exists. And I am going to do that in 40 minutes, hopefully. So, and again, we're really only touching the tip of the iceberg. We're just dipping our toe in a lot of these topics. There's so much more that can be said, and, and we do encourage you to go on and read more. And again, I've, I've put some of that in the notes. We have been doing a, a series of videos after the sermons this past couple weeks where we, we go in a little bit deeper dive, and so we, we encourage you to check those out as well. Okay, let's start with this. Debunking some popular misconceptions about Christianity and science. Number one, Christianity is anti-intellectual. This is a popular misconception. Have you ever turned on the TV, you know, whether whatever channel it's on, and there's some kind of, you know, news program, a talk show, and it kind of goes like this, right? The host says, tonight uh, we will be talking about the intersection of faith and science, or faith versus science. They say, our first guest is a former University of Oxford professor, evolutionary biologist, and best-selling author. He believes that science, not faith, holds the answers to all of the questions. On the other side of the aisle, we have a guy named Butch who lives in a swamp and dropped out of high school. He doesn't know how to read. He only has five teeth. He wears overalls with no shirt on underneath. And he believes that in the legitimacy of faith and Christianity. That's kind of how it's often portrayed. This big caricature of Christians is just being anti-intellectual. That's how it's often portrayed in social media or on TV or even university campuses. That Christianity and, and faith in general is portrayed as being naive simplistic and incompatible with reason. Now, religion, people say, well, you know, if you want to do that, that's fine. Just make sure you keep it to yourself. Let's, let's relegate that to the area of personal opinion and your personal life. But science, on the other hand, should occupy all of life because science is based on truth and evidence, whereas religion and Christianity, that's based on basically uh, wishful thinking and legends. Richard Dawkins, the outspoken British atheist, you know, the leader of the movement called the New Atheism, and he, he says it this, listen to this. He says, faith is a mental illness. It is a great cop-out. It is an excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Now, the question is, is that true? Is that correct? Is Christianity actually anti-intellectual as he asserts that it is? And the answer is, no, of course not. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. Actually, quite the opposite. Let me show you that Christianity actually gave birth to the modern scientific theory. Okay, so listen to this quote from Professor Alvin Plantinga. Alvin Plantinga is considered one of the premier philosophers of our modern era. Here's what Alvin Plantinga says. Modern science developed out of Christian theology because it presented a world with distinct form, complexity, and design. Christianity challenges us to experiment with what we see, believing that there is order and uniformity to the universe. So there were other civilizations like the Egyptians and, and other ancient civilizations which did have great technological advancements. But it was Christianity uniquely and specifically that gave birth to modern science. And there's a reason for that. Here's part of the reason. Consider what other religions and traditions teach 
about the natural world and universe. So for example, Buddhism and, and Eastern philosophy says that this natural world doesn't actually exist. So like this world that we live in, our bodies, the world that we see, none of it really exists. It's almost kind of like we are living within a virtual reality simulation and none of it's actually real. And so there's no point in studying the natural world because it doesn't actually exist. It's really just a figment of our imaginations. And the goal of reaching transcendence is to realize that and over overcome this physical world. Okay, so let's talk about polytheistic and, and religions and animistic religions. These don't do science because they explain everything by saying that the gods must have done it or that there's a god in the tree or in the rocks and, or in the sun. And so they don't study the natural world in that way because if they see water bubbling up from somewhere, they'll just say, well, you know, Poseidon stirred it up and that's just how it happens. So there's no scientific reasoning going on there. But the Bible, on the other hand, actually presents us with the basis for science because it presents a world which was created by an intelligent designer. It can be studied, and by studying it, you can actually learn more about that designer. Are you looking for a resource to help you answer some of the most difficult questions about God in the Bible? Then we've got good news for you. Pastor Nick has written a book called The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Embracing Christianity. In this book, Pastor Nick deals directly with some of the biggest questions people struggle with, such as how a loving God can allow innocent people to suffer, whether God condoned genocide in the Old Testament, or whether the Bible encourages the suppression of women and minorities. Does the Bible really say that some kinds of love are wrong? And is there any actual proof that God exists or that the Bible is trustworthy? Pastor Nick addresses these topics and more in this book, which is a great resource for anyone who wrestles with doubts or has concerns about these topics. And it is a great resource for those who want to help others who have questions about these topics. So to purchase this book, search for The God I Won't Believe In, Facing Nine Common Barriers to Christianity, wherever books are sold or visit nickkady.org. To celebrate the release of this book, we are offering a free copy of the book as our gift to any of our listeners who make a donation of any amount to support Beset Free Radio at besetfreeradio.com. And now, back to today's message. So Judaism and Islam have the same Old Testament. They use the same Old Testament that we do as Christians. But here's why those cultures also didn't give rise to science in the same way that Christianity did. Because Judaism and Islam are focused on what we would call jurisprudence, which basically means rule keeping. So they're focused on knowing the law and keeping the law. It's about rule keeping, so jurisprudence. Now, this is again what makes Christianity unique amongst world religions. And this is why Christianity gave birth to modern science, because Christianity is not focused on jurisprudence in the same way that Islam and Judaism are. And here's why. Because as Christians, we believe that Jesus kept the law perfectly for us on our behalf and that he imputes to us his righteousness. That's the gospel, that he imputes to us or, or puts in our account or stamps our name on his record. And, and that is how we become right with God. And so our focus is not on jurisprudence and keeping the law. As Christians, our focus is instead on having a relationship with God and knowing God. And that's a big difference. And that's also, again, what leads to science because one of the ways that we know God is by studying and analyzing the natural world and universe that he created. So think about this also. The heroes of Christianity, who are they? They're all scholars, aren't they? They're all great thinkers and philosophers and scientists. Think about this. The heroes of Christianity are, are, are scholars. The apostle Paul, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, David Livingston, Jonathan Edwards. These are 
scholars. The idea that Christianity is scared of science and learning and deep thinking has never been true. In fact, do you know that the university was a 12th century Christian invention? Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, Brown, they all had their beginnings as Christian institutions. So deep thinking and scientific analysis has not only always been encouraged by Christianity, but modern science in large part developed because of Christianity. So where did this idea come from that learning and knowledge are good things that should be encouraged and pursued? That came from the Bible. Again, now let's look at the text that we opened with this morning. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Here's the scene. Jesus is in Jerusalem. In the previous chapter, chapter 21, we read about Jesus' triumphal entry when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem and he was hailed as Messiah and King and they laid out the red carpet for him, made of palm branches, and they had a ticker tape parade and everybody welcomed him as King. We studied about this just, I think it was four weeks ago for Palm Sunday. Matthew 21, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. He's welcomed, and it is four days after that great welcome that he's crucified. And it tells us in chapter 21 that what we're reading about here in chapter 22 happened the next day. So this is now Monday, the day before Jesus came into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, hailed as the king of the Jews, as the Messiah, the savior of the nation and of the world. And now it's Monday. And so he goes down to the temple and he starts teaching the people. People start gathering to him. And as he's there teaching the people in the temple court, crowds of people come into him, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees come and they interrupt him. So here he is teaching. Imagine this, teaching, even even a setting like today. We're, We're teaching, we're studying, we're having a talk. And then what if some people came in and they interrupted and they started drilling me with questions and they interrupted this whole meeting. That's exactly what happened with the Sadducees and the Pharisees who were, who were the two different groups of religious leaders in Jewish society at that time. Now these guys generally hated each other, but there's nothing that brings people who hate each other together more than hating somebody else even more. And that's kind of what they had with Jesus is that they both didn't like Jesus. And the reason was because Jesus was hugely popular and Jesus regularly criticized them or critiqued them for their hypocrisy. And so they didn't like that. So they see Jesus, he's got this big crowd. He's now on their turf. This is their place, Jerusalem, the temple court. So they come around and they're like, hey, they start drilling Jesus with questions, trying to, trying to basically embarrass him, get him to say something that will undermine the people's thinking about him. They're trying to cut him down to size. And so much to their chagrin, they're not able to stump him no matter how hard they try. And that's what chapter 22 is. It's like one after another, these guys line up and they come and they say, okay, Jesus, how about this? And much to their chagrin, they're not able to stump Jesus. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 34. Another person trying to stump Jesus. He says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, basically the Sadducees had not succeeded at stumping Jesus. Then the Pharisees came and they tried. And it says one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now it says lawyer. I want you to remember, this is not talking about like trial attorney, like Frank Azar. You guys know who he is. The strong arm of the law. Like if you've been in an accident, he's going to get you a big settlement or he'll help you get out of that DUI you got or something like that. It's not that kind of lawyer. No, for the Jews, a lawyer is a class of scholar who who dedicated their whole life to studying the law of Moses and applying it to real life situations. And so that's what this guy is. And he says, okay, look, this is my area of expertise. Jesus, why don't you tell me, which is the greatest commandment in the law? 
This is one of those questions that you can't really answer, right? If I were to ask you, hey, which of your kids do you love the most? Um, uh, you know, how do you answer that? Or, hey, do I look fat in this dress? I mean, not, not that I would wear a dress. I'm saying that a, a female person wearing a dress might ask that question. You know what I'm saying. There are 613 laws in the law of Moses. How can you possibly say that one of those laws is more important than any of the other laws? So he's trying to start a, stir up some kind of controversy and, and do something that will get people, some people, to not like Jesus. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, he responds by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. And what that means is that you are to love the Lord with every part of your being. Elsewhere, the Bible encourages us to honor God with our bodies, for example. The idea is that with everything that you are, everything you have and everything that you are, you are to use everything that you have, everything that you are, to honor and worship God. Has God given you a voice? Then use it to praise Him. Has God given you an able body, two hands? Then use those two hands to serve Him and to honor Him and to worship Him. Has God given you a mind? Well, then use your mind to seek him, to know him, to make him known, to discover everything that he has put out there for you to discover by which you can come to know more about him. And then Jesus goes on to say something else. And this would have been particularly surprising. I don't think too many people were surprised by Jesus' first part of the answer. They were familiar with that. It was called the Shema. They would pray it three times a day. But what would have been really surprising is what Jesus says next. He says, but there's another commandment, the second greatest commandment. And that's related to the first. He says, here it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is interesting, even in our modern age, because there is this kind of common thinking that says, before you can love anybody else, or in order for you to be able to love somebody else, you have to first focus on loving yourself. But here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, actually, you're already pretty good at loving yourself. I think we can tick that box. You are doing it. You are loving yourself. Good job. Now let's focus on something else. Loving your neighbor doesn't depend on loving yourself more. Rather, the Bible says, the ability to love others actually comes from the understanding of God's love for you. Basically receiving and understanding how much God loves you and what God has done, how he has expressed that love to you. When you realize how much God loves you and, and you realize that he has shown that love for you ultimately in actions by sacrificially giving himself, when that sinks in and it astounds you and it overwhelms you, that is what enables you to love other people. And these two things, loving God with all that you are and loving other people as you love yourself, he says, that's what all of the law and prophets, the Old Testament, is about but here's the problem with that, of course. The problem is that none of us have succeeded at doing that perfectly all the time. That is the problem, isn't it? We haven't always loved God with everything that we are, and we haven't always loved our neighbors as we love ourselves. We've fallen short of that, and, and that calling that God has for our lives. And that is exactly why we need a Savior. And the good news of the gospel, that's what the gospel means, the good news, the good news of Jesus is that God himself has become our Savior. On the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sins and for all of our shortcomings, and he said, it is finished paid in full, done, I did it on your behalf. That's what he says. And so what is your part in this? Your part in this is to trust in and rely on and cling to Jesus and what he's done for you rather than trusting in yourself and your own good deeds and your own efforts. But I want you to notice this. Jesus said that the greatest commandment, the greatest commandment, in other words, the thing that God wants most from you is to love the Lord with all your heart, 
which is emotions. With all your soul, that's the essence of who you are beyond your, your mind and your body. And with all your mind. How do you do that? Well, think about this. Jesus said in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus said, the essence of eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's the essence of eternal life is to know him. And so the question is this, how do you know God? One of the ways that you can know God is through your mind, studying the natural world and learning about the universe. The Bible tells us that because God designed and created the universe, that there are things that we can learn about him by observing and studying the universe. Psalm 19, which we read, by the way, at the beginning of our service is our call to worship. It says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day and night they speak, and they speak in a language which everyone on earth can understand. Because God is our creator, the natural world is covered with his fingerprints, his imprint, his designs reveal things about him. Romans chapter one, it says this, that what can be known about God, his invisible attributes, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com.